So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we're really excited to be joined by Jorge Cuellar. He is Assistant Professor of Latin American, Latino and Caribbean Studies at Dartmouth College. So welcome to the show, Jorge. Thanks a lot, Lev. It's great to be here. Great. And I'm really excited about the topic today. We haven't done a show on Bitcoin in a long time, and I'm, I'm very interested in cryptocurrency and um, I think a lot of the audiences as well. So but today we're going to be talking about um, a piece you wrote in the New Left Review called Bitcoin Sanctuaries. You talk about Bitcoin broadly in Latin America and specifically where well, you start your piece looking at Bitcoin in El Salvador. Um, in June, the president of El Salvador announced that um, Bitcoin would become legal tender so let's start with, with his argument. What, why would he do this? So the president, um, Nayib Bukele, he's the youngest president El Salvador has ever had. Um, and he's always touted himself as an as a iconoclastic kind of figure that doesn't emerge from the traditional left and right parties in El Salvador. And a lot of what he's been doing is has been different, has been path-breaking. And Bitcoin is one of his most novel radically novel ideas for revolutionizing the Salvadorian economy. And he's presented this uh, project, this Bitcoin project, as a way to uh, lessen remittance fees that Salvadorian migrants who live in the US and Canada and Europe send back to El Salvador. Remittances, you know, consist of about a quarter, a third to a quarter of the El Salvador's GDP. So it's a sizable chunk of the entire economy and lessening some of those fees to him uh, is is uh, is one of his mandates that he that he ran on and he's using Bitcoin to deliver on it because he sees this problem of uh, MoneyGram and Western Union as kind of predatory institutions on uh, Salvadoran remittances into the country because they take too high a percentage fee from every transaction and so he's. He's selling Bitcoin to the Salvadoran public as as a zero percent transaction uh, uh, system, and and he thinks that this will be uh, this will be the solution moving forward. And I take it you don't think that that's true. And also, seventy percent of Salvadorians agree with you. So, what's what's your issue with the plan, and what's what's their issue? So, I think my concern is that. In fact, Bitcoin doesn't do 0% transaction fees. I think for the money to be useful in a Salvadoran economy, those Bitcoins, those Satoshis need to be transferred out into US dollars. And there's always a percentage transaction, a percentage fee to every transaction in that transferring of Bitcoin to US dollars because it's not generalized enough yet. Um, and so for me, that's a that's a that's a pretty big fib by Bukele to the people that, in fact, unless you're trading Bitcoin to Bitcoin, there will always be fees and there'll be conversion fees, transfer fees. Um, and even you need to use U.S. dollars and put into Bitcoin to go ahead and buy coins themselves. So there is a sort of hidden cost everywhere that aren't really described to the public. And Bukele has never been keen on explaining that to the people. So even when he pitched this idea initially, he wasn't speaking to Salvadorans in Spanish, telling them this is how Bitcoin is going to work. This is how it will improve your lives. In fact, he was telling, you know, Bitcoin boosters uh, at the Miami uh, 2021 Bitcoin conference 
and and uh, and selling and selling these investors on this idea that then trickled down into uh, Salvadoran public discourse that you know took everybody by surprise. Everybody was like, "Wait, why? Why is this happening? What is Bitcoin? Why why are they telling the gringos and why haven't they told us? Like, what's happening?" And so, even from the get go, the the idea itself um, was not sort of angled towards uh, Salvadoran needs and was always pitched as a kind of foreigner first project. And I think that in and of itself has left a bad taste um, in Salvadoran people's mouths. Um, in addition to the fact that um, there are other struggles in El Salvador that are more immediate and that are actually around things like value as well, um, specifically something like the value of water and the privatization of water um, in the country. So there are other more urgent, you know, so socially reproductive needs that are not at the priority of the government agenda. And so Bitcoin, strangely being at the top of the agenda was such a you know, shock to everybody. And I think that was another one of the reasons that 70% of Salvadorans are, are really not interested in, in this, this thing. And in addition to the fact that just 20 years ago, um, El Salvador became dollarized um, and had left behind uh, their original currency that was called the Colón, um, due to questions of inflation, and it ended up really helping the financial sector, bankers and importers, um, but really just inflated um, the cost of everyday goods. And so even that experience of a kind of currency transition um, in 2000, 2001, um, is still a kind of specter to uh, this new approach and this new thing towards Bitcoin that, that Bukele is pushing for. So yeah, let's go back who benefits from this? Because it seems like on the face of it, I mean, if you've ever done a transaction in Bitcoin, you know that it's, yeah, it's really expensive. It can be kind of slow. You don't want to buy pizza with it. So what is he thinking? Is he thinking that a lot of these gringos will come down and buy property in El Salvador and, and mine in El Salvador? Yeah, so I think there's there's two things here. I think he sees it as a kind of economic stimulus for you know, sort of pandemic depression, essentially. And then the other is that it will, it will be, uh, it will, it will impel uh, infrastructural development in the country around energy. So those seem to me to be the kind of two rails that he's, that he's depending Bitcoin will provide. And what that means is that Salvadoran people are really not included in any of that. Uh, many of those benefits will not, they will not see them in their, in their own households. And so it seems to me, and, and based on what I've seen in El Salvador, it's, it's really for international investors who hold, who hold Bitcoin, Bitcoin whales, you know, people who, 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 have been, who have been mining since the very beginning and need to sort of move this immaterial money into, into concrete material goods. And El Salvador is opening itself up for that. So yeah, indeed, uh, real estate has become one of the major kind of sectors in El Salvador, especially oceanfront and beachfront properties um, have become uh, a, a major kind of offering by the country and by Bukele to Bitcoin holders to come in and, and purchase property. He's offered them uh, a national residency so they can actually claim to be residents of El Salvador if they, wow. if they, if they put down three Bitcoin. And so there's, there's, a, there's a real incentive to, to help uh, Bitcoin holders move Bitcoin assets into El Salvador 
and purchase a property, create new businesses, uh, you know, in this way, kind of stimulate the economy. But but it seems to me that uh, that uh, this has a very kind of limited effect, po- limited positive effect on actual sort of everyday life in El Salvador, um, where, you know, people live on a few dollars a day, they earn about on average $350 a month. So there's no there's no real uh, sense to me that Bitcoin is going to be a vehicle for accumulating wealth for regular people. But in fact, it's kind of a unidirectional thing where where it's about courting international holders of Bitcoin or uh, mining operations and bring them into El Salvador to establish a financial sector that can, uh, you know, sort of perhaps perhaps revolutionize the aging financial sector in El Salvador um, or make El Salvador a kind of provider of uh, of of Bitcoin, uh, you know, financial uh, services in the same way that something like Panama has always done for you know sort of global dollarized economies. So this seems to me more of the strategy rather than any kind of net positive for for regular people who are who are really you know being uh, trained in the use of Bitcoin as the as the laws already in effect. So there was never any kind of preparation or any kind of uh, financial education extended to folks. You know, and so it's really pushing regular people into a volatile economy, yeah. uh, this kind of speculative bubble with no sense of what's really going on. But for regular Salvadorans, the the perception, to some at least, the perception is that this could be, you know, their way out of poverty, uh, their way, you know, for economic mobility. But what's what's evident, given that the finite amount of Bitcoins that uh, that we know can be mined and the kind of late stage, sort of late stage uh, phase that we're in with Bitcoin, there's really no way that wealth will will be accumulated by uh, regular people in El Salvador and use this and sort of for this to be a vehicle to escape cycles of poverty. And even though this is another one of the kinds of you know, techno-utopian and, and fiscal radicalism that Bukele is touting around Bitcoin as a liberatory cu- currency. Yeah, I want to go back to this question of dollarization. Um, and maybe you can explain to me what the thinking was, both in, in Ecuador and in El Salvador in the early two, 2000s. I, I remember being with a Chilean friend in, in Spain. This must have been 2003. To we were we were in Barcelona and he's an economist and he was saying, you know, there are a lot of Ecuadorians here now in uh, like on uh, tourists, and he was saying um, in Spain and he was saying you know part of it is because they dollarized and for particularly for middle class and upper middle class Ecuadorians now they have some money to to travel it's not so hard for them to travel but he said but look in a couple of years this is going to lead to a financial crisis and then sure enough Ecuador went through a financial crisis just a couple of years later. But it never made a lot of sense to me why a country might do that, given, given what we know about shifting over to the dollar and, and, and how that ultimately can lead to, to crisis. So what was the thinking in El Salvador and, and what's, what's been the impact of that? Yeah, I think in the Ecuadorian case, uh, President then President Hamil Mawad was uh, uh, he he regretted dollarization. He always talked about it as this kind of last ditch effort to stabilize the Ecuadorian economy because it was barreling, 
towards uh, financial instability and inflation, out of control inflation. Uh, and so the Sucre was just, it was becoming a ridiculous, it was a ridiculous kind of a kind of play money, essentially. And dollarization became this effort to, to peg it to a certain value um, and, 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 and stabilize the, the, the Ecuadorian economy in the short term. And so dollarization became a short term solution that, as you correctly mentioned, Lev, really, it precipitated a migration crisis of many Ecuadorians leaving the country to places like the United States. And so similarly in El Salvador, we have uh, we have we don't have quite this uh, the same inflationary crisis around the colon. But part of the arguments that the that, that wealthy elites are making in El Salvador uh, of the around the need to dollarize the economy is really just really two, and they're quite quite direct. The first one is um, is to help the the banking sector and traditional uh, industrialists who often engage in import and exporting to accumulate in U.S. dollars rather than have to constantly convert into Colón, which makes makes their uh, purchasing power uh, within those international and global circuits uh, much weaker. And so one of the things was uh, uh, at this this moment, uh, El Salvador was trying to decide on whether to devaluate the, the devalue the colon into more than um, eight dollars and uh, yeah eight dollars and seventy five cents to the to the dollar uh, eight seventy five colones to the dollar um, and uh, instead of devaluating the currency further um, in order to remain competitive on a global scale Salvadoran capitalists and political elites decided instead instead to just dollarize um, and what this what this also uh, meant at least politically and ideologically was that it created the conditions to then uh, possibly destabilize any incoming left government. So this is 2000, 2001, and, and the right wing uh, has ruled El Salvador ever since the end of the civil war in 92. So let's call it that entire decade, um, they had held on to, to the executive. And, and so this fear of, of a left presidency or left party entering into the government at this, at this fragile moment um, became, became, became a thing that pushed um, Salvadoran elites to decide on dollarization in order to have better control over incoming governments coming in, right? Which then would, might include the United States as a possible uh, ally in order to destabilize a left government and, and the other one being that they could accumulate in U.S. dollars uh, as bankers, as importer, exporters, um, and not have their currency uh, and their purchasing power on that scale devalued. And what that meant for regular Salvadorans is that basically over the course of the 1.5 years after dollarization was decreed, all goods from, from water to beans to rice to corn became you know, dollarized and, and, and wages had stagnated. So there was no real raising of wages to accommodate the new prices of dollars in uh, the Salvadoran economy. And what that meant is that people were earning in colones that were, that were pegged to the dollar, 
but didn't but the prices of goods coming in were in full US dollars as if it were Los Angeles or DC or or, or New York and uh and so there the purchasing power of Salvadorans really remained the same while prices for goods were dollarized and became much more expensive and unattainable and this created poverty created uh, uh unemployment created this wage stagnation also fueled what we now uh, see as one of the major waves of migration of Salvadorans into the United States and elsewhere. So really dollarization became a, a kind of social trauma that pushed people outward um, and that also make really surviving in, in the Salvadoran economy that wage where wages hadn't yet caught up with a market that had changed overnight, it made, made folks uh, experience poverty and precarity and economic struggle much more uh, routinely. So uh, you mentioned in the article that it's not just El Salvador, which is experimenting with with shifting to, to crypto. It's also Paraguay and Uruguay and, and Puerto Rico. And you say that this is sort of the latest example of Latin America as, as a laboratory. And so you get neoliberalism in the 1980s, you get debt crisis, you get dollarization, you get micro lending. Why is it that that this is the case? That's a that's a pretty deep question, Lev. Um, so my I, I think about the the kind of this historically and looking all the way back to things like you know how Honduras was itself a kind of corporate corporate state was colonized by a corporation like United Fruit Brands, um, and then you know the political structure of Honduras and its laws and its uh, fiscal policies became very much uh, oriented towards facilitating and enabling um, and making life easier for that corporation. And so this kind of dynamic of, uh, you know, global capital coming to Central America, setting up business, setting up shop, and then uh, manipulating and and coaxing uh, benefits from the, uh, the local state um, is something that we've seen uh, across across Central American history and Latin American history in general. As for how we see these uh, micro uh, microfinance or or fintech uh, uh, precursors in in the region, it's largely they, they've always been kind of pushed in this in this area for poverty reduction programs. And so much of the kind of microcredit things that happened in the 1980s um, and in the 19 and that accelerate in the 1990s are are these ways of, of of attending to mass poverty and at that point already mass out migration in countries that had been totally decimated by by war. And so uh, these become uh, quick fixes um, for people to take it upon themselves to. Uh, to see themselves out of economic misery and from uh, poverty in general, but these, but what these, what microcredit does is essentially force people into recurrent debt cycles where they actually never unlink from uh, paying off micro loans that have astronomical interest rates, um, and this becomes a good business for micro lending institutions some of which uh you know crop up they crop up all over, all over latin america but in central america um are often from other countries that set up shop there and so these uh central america and and impoverished communities throughout latin america have often been 
kind of petri dishes for uh, seeing how financial technology might work and what solutions, it, what problems it might solve. Um, and this, you know, with, uh, with to, to variable effect um, has often tended towards actually producing more immiseration and dependency on, uh, on loans, on a corrupt financial sector that is a characteristic of Latin American countries um, and, and, and things like the IMF and the World Bank that, that have also been convinced that these uh, forms of financial uh, instruments are in fact useful to bringing more people into the global uh, banking system and the global financial system. But we see it from uh, very early on that even countries themselves were the site of market speculation from you know, buying and selling debt on the market um, to trade liberalization and how much of the, the, the cost that we uh, experience here in a place like the United States is really dependent on uh, the unequal uh, trade policies that are often politically and militarily enforced in places like Central America um, and that create these, these conditions for uh, financial experimentation and the squeezing, the further squeezing of the economies of the poor. A few months ago, of course, you remember Kamala Harris telling people who are coming to the United States, I don't know if she went to the southern border, but anyway. I think she went to Guatemala. Went to Guatemala. Okay. And she basically says, don't come. Yeah. United States. We had uh, Aviva Chomsky on uh, a couple months ago. And her major point was similar to what you were saying. And she was saying, look, it's these, it's these trade deals which are, are causing misery and, and poverty and, and forcing people to come here to the United States. That's, compli- that's really complicated, right, for most yeah. Americans to understand. So I'm wondering, when you're talking to people who, who don't really understand how, how trade works and why bad trade deals might lead to mass migration or immigration, what are some answers? How do you how do you explain in real simple terms to people what's gone wrong in, in Central America and who's responsible and how it can be fixed if it can be fixed? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a loaded one too. So the way to begin a response to that is first of all, it's it's very patronizing for Kamala Harris to come to Guatemala and tell Central Americans not to come. Mm-hmm. Because it's an ahistorical and highly ideological response to to not really uh, reckoning with the fact that the U.S. has a lot of uh, blood on their hands in, in in many ways in creating the conditions that today characterize uh, the crisis that envelops the region. That and that's one 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 way that we can think about it is through trade, um, where. The, what trade deals have often done and trade liberalization deals or free trade, um, all the way, at least for today, we can talk about CAFTA, um, uh, the Central American Free Trade Agreement that was uh, put into effect around 2004. So this, the, what CAFTA really did is that it, it created uh, sectors within Latin America and within Central America specifically that were primarily export-oriented uh, sweatshops, essentially. And this became uh, 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 
suggested as a path towards development, for more employment, for economic opportunity, and all these kinds of, you know, sort of uh, financial inclusion rhetorics that are often tied to, to these kinds of deals. What we see with what the CAFTA has done and with dollarization as its kind of twin and parallel uh, thing is that it's created, you know, very uh, sectorized uh, development through maquilas and through other forms of, uh, of, of industry, textile industry primarily, that really didn't, uh, you know, sort of spread out throughout Central American economies. And this really only helped those folks who were the owners of maquilas, the very few who were employed by them for very hard labor within, within maquilas, um, and uh, and so it, it really it was very piecemeal. It was very piecemeal development. It didn't kind of have the consequences and effects that that we that we wanted to see, and and really just helped to strengthen you know the pocketbooks uh, and the portfolios of traditional elites who were the, the the industrialists, who were the large landowners, who were the huge business owners. We see this we see this in Honduras as a real key case study with the with new policies that are being pushed by um, by not only not only by those countries but in in cooperation with global elites with the with the with the zedes which are these kinds of financial uh, enclaves um, that are separate from the kind of legal uh, terrain of Honduras so they're not subject to Honduran law and they, they exist in this kind of bubble where they can basically do what they want, this kind of laissez-faire, anarcho-capitalism. Um, and so there, there's, there's various examples throughout Central America how these free trade deals and, these, and this dealing of Central America as, uh, as a place that's to provide the commodities for consumption in global North markets that has created not only in, incredible economic dependencies with the U.S., um, but also uh, uh, is now beholden to these kinds of dynamics for many people's, uh, uh, you know, survival strategies. And when that, when those, when those economic projects don't have the wide impact that they are touted to have, uh, many folks are left out, and thus you have, you know, ec economic crisis upon economic crisis in everyday life, and people decide to to leave the country for better opportunities elsewhere. And sometimes not even better opportunities, just just to live, right? Because with unemployment, with poverty, you have the rise of criminality. You, you have the rise of insecurity, and thus you have the state response, which is militarization, with this, which is policing, um, which is kind of disciplining the poor. And then you have this kind of dynamic that makes for a hostile environment that folks want to want to leave from. And so that's that's one way to see how uh, trade and, 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 and free trade in this example, alongside dollarization, created a particular combination of factors that that hurt the everyday person and, and, cre and created precarity as a as a kind of now lived condition as a result of these policies. But mm -hmm. on the other but on the other hand, you know, we also have the United States uh, offering aid and help to Central America, not, not through uh, community uh, and local development projects, which are often the most effective site to reinforce uh, social development and, and, 
and and bolster you know the subsistence practices of peasants and urban uh, dwellers. But in fact, what they're doing is actually offering money to more police and more military, and so uh, by by funding you know various kind of regional uh, strategies for containing migrant peoples in this pressure cooker that I just described. So it's this, uh, mm-hmm. and so it's, it, it's, it's, they're, they're, they want the economic development, they want to help, but they're helping in, in the way that is most damaging and, and, and violent in effect, which actually contributes nothing to, to the way that people are, are, are trying to survive there. And there are efforts in the country of people, you know, still practicing local forms of, you know, farming and, and campesino ways of living um, and traditional forms of, of making community in a place like El Salvador and Honduras. But with the with development that that is geared for, you know, profit making in global markets, you have this wedge, this tension between capitalists who will do anything to acquire those fertile lands that they need in order to, you know, plant palm oil or bananas for export, which is their 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 profit motive going against the the basic social reproductive needs of 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 marginalized communities, of poor communities who just want some piece of arable land for their own subsistence. And so this this is a this is the kind of, you know, these are the various kinds of problems that Central America is mired in um, that are dependent on the kinds of financial flows that are coming into the country that encourage certain kinds of economic behaviors, certain kinds of institutional and state behaviors, um, you know, being the military and the police, and actually make impossible the, 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 the economic activity and the reproductive activity of regular people who would love to stay in a place like Central America, do not want to leave home, but are forced to uh, because simply the, those subsistence um, uh, possibilities are no longer available to them. And if they are available, they often require a deadly, deadly conflict with those larger, more corporate and, and, and traditional oligarchic interests that are supported or if not, if not supported, um, people, don't, people look the other way around them. If I can just restate, if we go back just to the period of beginning of this period of free trade, it's the the United States, the global elite, the local elite working together to craft these free trade agreements, which benefit some people, even some people say in El Salvador. But again, the prosperity is not widely shared. And then because life has become so miserable you then you double down this project, but you also militarize the country. Is that pretty much the story? Yeah. And with that, we have to include, you know, the deportation of many people from the United States who are gang members and, and, and criminals, um, according to the United States, and are deported back to their countries of origin. And that really fuel the phenomenon beginning in the, 19, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. As, as El Salvador, for example, is coming out of its civil war, mm-hmm. that, that really, again, introduces a, a kind of a social phenomenon um, around gangs and, 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 and this kind of everyday criminality that is another factor that is 
festering in this environment that is that is not really equipped, right? Given given that it's a post-war society with a fragile institutionality, all these kinds of projects of of, of free trade and dollarization are being pushed by elites. It's just not really equipped to, to handle any kind of, you know, sort of social rehabilitation or inclusion, integration of these kinds of folks who are being deported. Mm-hmm. And so it really uh, sets the stage for the explosion of, 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 of gang criminality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other thing is like, we're starting in, the 80s but this is to say nothing of a 500 year extractive colonial project exactly um, i'd like to try to leave on a optimistic or positive note so one thing i always ask the guests is well, what is something in the world that you are really optimistic about right now yeah no that's a really great question i think it in some ways answers the previous question too that i think i alluded to but what we need to really support and we need to uh, strengthen is these kinds of uh, social movements in places like Central America, but really all across the planet that are trying to defend their livelihoods, their notions of belonging, their ways of living. That for me, and and I'll give a specific example here, um, in Honduras, for instance, we have uh, Afro-descendant Black communities, indigenous communities, who are really, you know, charting a different way forward to unlink from this financial system, from neoliberal trade policies, from militarization, and offering another social contract uh, to refound many of these, uh, you know, what are poisoned, uh, uh, you know, state institutions. And so, from from those kind of actors that are trying to defend and recover the land that has been stolen from them, there's an important politics there that offers uh, an, another way to think how to uh, address many of these entrenched social inequalities. In Guatemala too, we have collectives of indigenous folks and campesinos who are trying to articulate a new constitution for Guatemala, again, to address these historical inequalities, to, to address present and ongoing uh, violence in their communities, to curb you know, this kind of automatic migration that often uh, communities are, are, are kind of sutured into. Uh, and so there's, there's projects that are, that are really, uh, they're pro-social that some, somehow might feel prefigurative or, or, or utopic, but are actually happening in real time at the same time that these violences are happening um, in their communities and that are responding to it um, with concerted strategies and, and political ambitions um, that I think uh, might, 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 might actually give us a, a way to think ourselves and, and live in a world that, that is not so uh, sandboxed by, by, these, by these problems that, that Central America has often had. But you know, things like Bitcoin as the answer from the state really betrays what, what people are, are really concerned about. People are concerned about water. In El Salvador, that's the, one of the principal concerns. They're, they're concerned about access to food. They're concerned about, you know, uh, everyday well-being. If you're a person who's of a marginalized community, whether it be Black, Indigenous, um, LGBTQ, you know, this is, these are folks who have existential risk as 
as part of their everyday. And so those are real concerns. Something like Bitcoin uh, is, 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 a, is, this, is this kind of funny thing happening on the side when the real struggle for, for, for people in, in Central America, and now I'm speaking on El Salvador specifically, is something like water that's being privatized from under their feet. Right. El Salvador, as I've written before, will likely run out of water in a lifetime. And so it's th- those are the real issues that I think that are part of the kind of political economic reality of El Salvador and also in other countries that are also experiencing water shortages in a, in a time of, you know, uh, intensified droughts and climate stress. Those are the real issues that I think folks are very admirably and valiantly responding to that to me offer a sense of hope and optimism that there really is a way out of this quagmire.